Some very um, relevant themes in these songs that we've sung that have prepared our hearts for this passage we'll be looking at in Hebrews. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 4 through 14, but we'll be focusing primarily on verses 7, 8, and 9. I know I listed there all the way through 12, but we're, we're not going to cover the whole section. Um, but we'll pick up in verse 10 next week and hopefully wrap up the chapter, uh, 10 through 14. But you recall one of the themes of, of Hebrews, as we've been considering, is that the author is, is encouraging this small group of Jewish believers. You know, they, they're, they're, they're Jews who have, con, who have accepted Christ as their Savior, and, and they've gathered together in this community most likely within Rome, but they're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing threats from the culture, threats from uh, their previous Jewish community, right? challenges uh, to, to resort back to their previous faith. And so this really is a letter or a sermon about perseverance. Perseverance is, is like the final description that's applied to those who maintain their faith in Christ to the end of their lives. And so that faith will not remain in hearts that do not treasure Christ. Where Christ is minimized or Christ is, is not um, elevated to the height of our, of our treasure, then we, we end up being prone to wander, prone to compromise. And so that's why this sermon letter opens and then it continues with numerous examples of the superiority of the Son this passage here, beginning in verse 4 to the end of chapter 1, is about the superiority of the Son over angels. Right? He states his argument in verse 4, uh, makes his, his, his case from verses 5 through the end, really with a string or a chain of Old Testament quotes. Just one after the other. Uh, five of them come from the Psalms. Um, one from 2 Samuel, one from Deuteronomy. So all of these quotes are, are just strung together, all pointing to the superiority of the Son over angelic beings. And there's really no other passage of Scripture that's like it. I mean, if you want to highlight the deity of Christ, if you're talking to someone who belongs to a cult, doesn't recognize the Trinity, um, or someone who just can't grasp that, take them to Hebrews 1. Read that passage. See how the uh, New Testament is understanding the role of Christ in light of the descriptions that are given there. You could also turn to John 1, Colossians 1, all of them very helpful passages that speak to the deity of Christ and beyond that. But I, I would say the author of Hebrews here is, is doing uh, this uh, in, in, a, in a unique way where he, it's almost like instead of making an argument, he just says, consider this verse, consider this verse, consider this verse, right? It's over and over. He just is quoting. So last week, we considered how the son is superior to angels because he has a better name, verse 4, a better claim, verse 5, and a better fame. And the passage then breaks down into those two sections where he states it in verse 4 and then makes his case, proves it from Scripture. In other words, he's expecting his audience to be like Bereans to take what he has to say and study it, to go back into the context of his, the quotes that he's referring to, to see if these things are true, right? So he is supporting his preaching from the word of God. He's not 
um, you know, he's not expecting them to just take his word for it. He's expecting them to take God's word for it, to understand and apply it uh, to their context. And so we talked about the, the apparent temptation of this original audience. And it's, it's, it's hard to pin down exactly where this, you know, uh, the level of this temptation, but we would say that there was a teaching that elevated angels to a status that, that called for the worship of creature, the, the worship of, of men. Right? And so they were, they were suggesting that, that angels were these, this higher order of creation that then we should, we should honor them and, and elevate their status and, and worship them. Um, you have uh, exhortations from Paul not to do that, not to, not to fall for these false teachers who were promoting that in, in, in Colossae. And so it's very possible that that's, those same teachers are there in Hebrews. Um, either way, the, the point is that this is one piece of an argument that carries throughout Hebrews that is saying Christ is supreme. Christ is superior to all things. And he begins with angels. Whether you want to read beyond that into some level of temptation that they're experiencing, um, you know, it's harder to, to pin down. But considering the amount of space and the, the way in which he's, he's, he's put seven back-to-back quotes from the Old Testament together. He's allotted quite a bit of space, so it seems to be a significant issue, right, for them that they're dealing with. People have directed their worship to a lot lower than angelic beings, right, in the past. They could have been worshiping Molech or Baal or some foreign god, sacrificing, you know, even their, their children to these gods as they've done in the past. Maybe we think their, their temptation then is less severe. And that at least these are heavenly beings. At least these are beings that are close to God. They're surrounding the throne. And so worshiping them is getting you closer to the truth. The best book on idolatry that I've come across is What We Become, What We Worship by Greg Bill. I've quoted it before. But he writes this, God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. And so in reality, we are always worshiping something or someone. Anytime the object of our worship is anything less than God, it is an offense to the one who made all things for his glory and for our good. And it will not satisfy the longing that we have. And so let us ask the Lord for his help to read Hebrews uh, rightly. And then we'll read uh, verses 4 through 14. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. And we know that as we have seen and, and, and mentioned in our call to worship that you have spoken through your son. And you have taught us what he said through the letters and the epistles that come to us in the New Testament and in the Gospels. And so we're grateful that we can open your word and we can hear from you. We can hear from your son. 
But Lord, in order to hear, we need to have our ears opened. We need to have our eyes opened and our hearts softened to these things. Lord, we cannot manufacture a proper attitude and a proper posture. But Lord, we come asking you to do that work that you and you alone can do. Fill us with your spirit. Enable us to hear the truth and to respond in obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. We'll, we'll hear this whole argument. We'll spend, again, one more week on this passage. And as I did last time, I'm going to jump back to verse 3, just so we're not beginning in the middle of a sentence. He, speaking of the Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he, bring, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. This is God's holy word. The first point we'll, we'll consider in verse 7 is that the Son provides an ongoing contrast. The Son provides an ongoing contrast. Here, Jesus, it says, in, um, I mean, the, the idea back in, in verse 4 is that Jesus has inherited a name that is far superior to angels. And it suggests that his redemptive work was rewarded upon his exaltation. Right? This, the passages that are, that are uh, represented in, in this chapter, they reflect the Son specifically in his redemptive capacity. That's what, they're, that's what they're highlighting. The work that he's done and the exaltation that he's received. And so we see that he's on the throne, right? that he is that he is in control. And so there's a contrast here between the son and the creatures. 
that would be represented by the angels, right? It suggests his redemptive work. So he, he inherits the name son, which then harkens back to the promises given to the messianic son of David, namely the promise of a throne, a glory, and a kingdom. You see, all of those had some temporary, um, immediate application to David and to following Davidic kings, but none of them had the culmination of fulfillment that is found only in Christ. Right? He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who brings final and full fulfillment. And so the promise that's given to him of a throne, a glory, and a kingdom that can never be shaken or diminished, that was a promise given to David and then passed on from generation to generation. And you can read about this same promise in Isaiah 11:10 and Psalm 132, verses 7 through 14. It's, it's a theme throughout the Old Testament until it comes to fulfillment. And so in this series of seven quotes from the Old Testament, again, five from the Psalms, the author of Hebrews makes this strong case for the Son's supremacy over angels. And when you study the Old Testament context for each of these quotes, as we've done, as we've, we've worked our way through it, we've, we've gone back and recognized what was happening, what was surrounding the, the, the words that he actually quoted, because that's important. Right, these are passages that, that are probably familiar to the original audience, especially as they grew up singing the psalms in the synagogue. They would know the fuller context of the passage. And so we should understand those as well. And when you look at them, you see how they're constantly complementing one another with these same themes of the, the throne of God, right? the, the, the authority and the sovereignty um, of God. And, and you, you can see the, the parallels there. Some even suggest that this collection of texts is probably not, or, or potentially not unique to the author of Hebrews. It's something that he's drawing from, maybe a book or a collection of psalms that are thematically strung together, so that he might even be pulling from a source that is familiar to the original audience. That, the, the point of that is just that whether he is developing this on his own or that there's some familiar source, it's very clear that the contexts have so many parallels that it looks like it's been very thoroughly thought through and very thoroughly put together. And so this first quote here in verse 7, that will, or the first quote that we're looking at today, comes directly out of Psalm 104, verse 4, that we sung earlier. It's a psalm about the greatness of God. God's glory is depicted as riding upon a chariot of clouds being powered by the wind. Verse 3. And so the wind is equated here with God's angels by the author of Hebrews. This is said of the angels. He sets up the quote. Right, so the wind is equated with God's angels in the sense that they operate according to God's will. They're servants of God. All right, this is reflected in the four living creatures. Uh, again, we referenced this earlier of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1 and that you find in Revelation chapter 4 as well. These four living creatures that surround the throne that represent something of humanity in glory. Right? They have images that reflect creatures, but they're angelic beings with wings that cover their face and that they fly with and you know, that, that cover their feet. These four living creatures that are, that, are, that are surrounding the throne and even moving the throne in Ezekiel 1. 
And so there's, there's this correlation here, or this connection between the angels and these creatures, the angels as, as winds, ministers as a flame of fire. It might also be the case, and I, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to, he, uh, to Psalm 104. Turn back to Psalm 104, because I want you to see that not only is the context of Psalm 104 relevant, but quite potentially Psalm 103. We've, we've heard this phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul. That was the title of, of, the, of Psalm 104a that we sung. And so we've heard that phrase, and you would think maybe it's more common in the Psalms. But it only occurs in Psalm 103 and Psalm 104. That phrase occurs five times in those two Psalms and nowhere else. So it would seem to be that this is a, a unit, right? There's a, a unit a, between, a, a connection, a deep connection between Psalm 103 and Psalm 104. There is a, a um, look at the end of 103, verses 20 and 21 specifically. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. So very, very directly there. So when we considered Psalm 104, verse 4, and the quote says, he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire, someone say, well, that doesn't reference angels. Why, where are we getting angels from there? It's talking about the winds doing the bidding of God. Well, you just got to go back in context a little bit, right? Psalm 103, 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Okay, so yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a different psalm and it's, a, it's separate, but they are clearly connected in theme by that language. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You have the same opening in Psalm 103 as well. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So it seems particularly relevant to the way the author of Hebrews is applying that verse here. Now, essentially, one of the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign purposes is through his angels. Right? In other words, Greg Bill puts it like this. In other words, the angels are servants. The son is Lord. And so elaborating on that is, is where I drew this theme. And if you look in your bulletin there, the theme of this sermon being creatures are never more than servants. The son is never less than Lord. That's the contrast. And we're saying the son provides an ongoing contrast. We should never equate the creatures with the Lord. So there's an... Uh, think about, again, the, the context of this, this community. The only reason that anyone would be tempted to worship angels is because of the glory with which God made them. Um, if we saw angels in their majesty, I think we would be tempted to fall down before them, just like we see John doing in Revelation 19. And then I believe it's the very next chapter. He does it twice on two different occasions. He falls before an angel and receives rebuke for doing so, falls before him in worship. I think there would be something in us that's tempted, at the very least tempted to do the same thing. But again, the message of the angels was consistently one that pointed to God. Worship God. I'm a creature. You can see something similar in, in Acts when the apostle Paul and Barnabas, after they healed a crippled man in 
Lystra, the people immediately declare them to be gods. Right? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Maybe they were reflecting on the Nephilim and that we talked about in Sunday school. Who knows? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men in Acts 14, 11. Well, these weren't, this wasn't a, a Jewish community. In fact, there was a, um, a temple to Zeus in this area. And the priest actually comes out and he's ready to sacrifice animals right then and there to Paul and Barnabas as gods, calling one of them Zeus, um, and I can't remember the other, but in Acts 14, 11. So the priest of Zeus in that region is prepared to offer a sacrifice on their behalf. The idea is that worship seems to be instinctive, even among a secular audience. Worship is instinctive. It's, a, it's, it's an instinctive response to those who have witnessed the power of God. All right? I mean, th- this crippled man was healed before, the, before their eyes. And so they wanted to, to worship that power. Now, whether it's the glory of a creature, the glory of an angelic being that is drawing us into worship, or the power of God that's displayed through the actions of a creature, in both cases, we have to guard against the temptation to worship anything less than the creator. Right? To, to worship the gift rather than the giver. Worship the creature rather than creation. And that's, that's really the application I want to point out, that, that we need to acknowledge that creature, uh, creator-creature contrast. When people worship the glory of creation, there is a sense in which we can understand that instinct. It's not so foreign to us that we're just flabbergasted that they would do such a thing. They're witnessing the power and the majesty and the beauty of God's created world. It ought to be breathtaking. But believers understand that the purpose of created beauty is to direct honor and praise to God to the one who made it. And so creatures, at their best, serve God and deflect all praise to him. We can strive to live according to the purposes for which we were made, which is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, and we should recognize that those purposes are embedded into our soul, that eternity is in our hearts. Right? There's this recognition of a God who made us, an acknowledgement. Now, I mean, that truth is suppressed, as Romans 1 tells us. But it's there instinctively in all of humanity. And so, in other words, we find our value, we find our meaning in life when we recognize and acknowledge that ongoing contrast between God and us. That should humble us to submit ourselves before our maker, to recognize that we do owe him our lives. Creatures are never more than servants. The son is never less than Lord. So how do you go about cultivating a desire to serve God? Well, at least one of the most fruitful ways is highlighting the supremacy of Christ over all things, which is what this author is doing. Meditating upon his character. And so we should read, we should pray, we should think, We should discuss what you learn within a community of like-minded believers. And even even when we possess the desire to serve God, 
we need to acknowledge that we're unable to carry out those desires apart from the help of the Spirit. As Paul declares in Romans 7, 18, as Jesus encouraged his closest disciples to pray for him before his betrayal, what does he say? The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. May the Spirit of Christ dwell with you richly and enable you to serve and honor and glorify your Lord and God. And so we see this contrast laid out explicitly in verses 8 and 9, where the Son provides an everlasting control. And in what I mean by that is this eternal throne, this everlasting throne upon which he rules and reigns and exerts his control. So angels are sent as God's ministers on behalf of the kingdom, whereas the Son... It's his own presence that establishes the kingdom. You you can read through the Gospels, um, Mark and Luke, and and see this language of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and it's it's equivalent to the Son's presence. The kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom is near you. And so the Son's presence establishes the kingdom, and his sovereign rule sustains it, as we see here in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verses 8 and 9 are quoted from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. But once again, we should take into account the broader context of Psalm 45. We're not just considering the two verses that are quoted here, but think about the broader psalm. And and Psalm 45 actually serves as a royal uh, wedding song for King Solomon. You have uh, this language of, uh, well, first of all, it's a love song composed by the sons of Korah. And verse 1 opens with the bride being thrilled. You can, you can follow along there if you'd like. But the bride is, is thrilled as she reflects upon her handsome groom in verse 2. In verses 3 through 5, she really proclaims his mighty strength, his military prowess. You can almost you know, envision her caressing his biceps and just longing, right? Like he, he's just this mighty warrior and she, she's enthralled by him. Later on, we see the, the wedding procession describing her as a princess clothed in robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she's led to the king. It's, it's the wedding procession. She's followed by her companions, her, her virgins. And they come to the king, and they're presented there. But it's in between this description of really a a, a wedding, where you have these verses about the throne. In between this description, you have the idea in verses, in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so here, God is the subject on his throne in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But he is also the object receiving the anointing of God. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. confusing (laughs) once again the author of hebrews then applies this to the son 
So he equates the Son with God in a passage that also makes a distinction between the Father and the Son. It's a, it's a wonderful passage, once again, to reflect on this, the, the triune nature of the Godhead. This was another messianic psalm that had immediate partial fulfillment in the life of Solomon, but also spoke of God's blessings upon the future king whose righteous reign is everlasting, who would always sit on his throne. The author is highlighting the difference between, once again, angelic creatures who surround the throne and are sent out as God's messengers, as ministers, and the son who rules from his throne forever. And as you look at verse 9 specifically, he, it begins to relate, once again, to his redemptive work. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I want to consider that a bit. Verse 9 emphasizes that redemptive work of the Son in his, in his glorified humanity. This is after his exaltation. This is part of his exaltation. The joy that he is anointed with, right? He's anointed with the oil of gladness as he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. But, but this follows the redemptive work that began in his humiliation, where he loved righteousness and hated wickedness throughout his human life. First becoming man, then dying a humiliating death on the cross. And so throughout his life, he loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and this is seen in the way he perfectly fought temptation. Right, he was tempted, the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted in every way that we are but he was without sin. So there was never a time when he succumbed to the pressures of temptation. And once again, I've come across an excellent illustration from C.S. Lewis. It almost seems like I'm just reading him right alongside this passage, but in Mere Christianity, he gives this illustration of the, of the temptation uh, and and the, the pressure of temptation. He says this, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. Maybe, maybe you've thought that before. Well, of course, that person's good. They've got everything given to them. Right? They don't have any challenges and trials in life. Super easy for them to stay good. C.S. Lewis says this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. They're not struggling. And so we never find out the strength of the evil impulses inside us until we try to fight it. And he says, Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. 
the only complete realist. Right, so that's his humiliation in his life, unyielding to temptation, loving righteousness, hating wickedness perfectly day after day. And so the reward for that is the enthronement that he receives in his exaltation. It's the reward of his sinless and sacrificial death. It's the culmination of a life lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And because he lived a sinless life, his sacrifice has infinite worth. And the result is the joyful reception of his inheritance. And that's implied in this oil of gladness that comes upon him. So unlike the angels who minister on behalf of God, the Son is in control and rules. It's from this glorified and anointed state in heaven that the Son poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, effectively fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that one day he would turn mourning into gladness. The difference being highlighted in these verses is one of authority. The son is in control. We can be assured that he reigns with a scepter of uprightness. He continues to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. And the joy with which he was anointed and his exaltation then overflows to all who have been reconciled to him. I want us to consider Romans 5.11. Romans 5.11 as, as a application of that. More than that, it says, we also rejoice. So we'll go back to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So again, it's the fulfillment of this, these promises from the old covenant that were given to the son. And that are quoted here by the author of Hebrews. He's teaching us how to read the Old Testament. He's teaching us how to read the Psalms. Right? It's the same way that Jesus taught the disciples on the road to Emmaus that we looked at a while ago, several months ago. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so as we read his word, as we sit under its preaching, hear it as the word of God. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, all in the light of the sun and for his glory. Let's acknowledge that to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reminder this morning. This encouraging reminder that you... That you sent your son uh, to live a life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserved. And then you rewarded him with the name that is above every name and that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And he is seated on his throne, even interceding for us now. And he sends his spirit to even 
pray when we don't know how to pray. And Lord, we find ourselves troubled at times. We find ourselves discouraged. We find ourselves frustrated with this world. And yet, Lord, more than anything else, we want to reflect upon your glory displayed in your Son and the way in which he loved righteousness and hated wickedness throughout his life. Living a perfect life And in his death on the cross, he takes upon himself our sin. He who knew no sin becomes sin. And he exchanges his perfect record, his perfect righteousness, and he gives it to all who place their faith in him. It is a remarkable gospel. It is good news that we should never tire of hearing. And Lord, as we rest in this truth, may it it compel us and fill us with gratitude to live after him, to follow him, to live and walk in obedience to the way that he has done on our behalf already and also modeled for us in his life. And in his sacrificial death, Lord, may we look at the world and see those who are hurting, those who are confused, those who are frustrated, and may we share with them the only hope that is everlasting, the only hope that will truly satisfy the longings of our heart. Lord, the longings that we know are embedded into them by their creator. May we draw upon those as we preach and proclaim trusting in you, proclaiming the gospel message and trusting that your spirit will do a work to open blind eyes and open deaf ears and to soften hardened hearts. All of this, Lord, we ask in Christ's name and for your glory. Help us now to respond, lifting him high. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, hymn number 369, Worship Christ, the Risen King.